This call is the second of a capacity-building mini-series on Making It Happen, offered jointly by the Community Matters Partnership and the Citizens Institute on Rural Design. Community Matters monthly calls are brought to you by the Orton Family Foundation and are an ongoing series designed to help people and their communities take charge of their futures. On today's calls, we have three community fundraising professionals who will walk us through funding sources, including crowdsourcing and grants. They'll take us through funding organization and planning, as well as application tips and communication considerations. Due to the complexity and interest of this information, uh, we're going to be extending this call uh, by about 15 minutes. So we'll finish up in about, uh, about 75 minutes from now. I'll start with a few call logistics before we get our uh, panel um, going, and then we'll follow up with your questions that we have gathered from the Google document. There are um, quite a number. There are dozens of them. So please review those questions before you add yours, because there might be a question already there uh, that covers your question. Uh, you can also add your own notes to the Google document. It's a good idea to skim through there, um, again, uh, to avoid redundancy. But if you have a question during the call, please enter it there. You can also share your wisdom, comments, and examples for questions in that same document. We'll leave this document up after the call as well and send it around to everybody. So all the call notes um, that... Uh, uh, Caitlin Haros is, is uh, taking uh, while the call is going on, and your notes that you've added to the document will be available to you after this call. And you should be able to add to the document almost any time by using the edit button. However, uh, since Google Docs can only handle 50 people at a time as active document editors, if you don't plan to add to the document, please close out after your addition so other people can have the chance to open the document and edit actively. As soon as you uh, close out, you can reopen the document in about 30 seconds in the read-only mode and follow right along. If you're having any trouble with the Google Doc during the call, the best thing to do is just hit refresh and try again. Okay, let's move on. We have three terrific speakers today. Cynthia Adams is president and CEO of GrantStation. Jennifer Hughes is a design specialist at the National Endowment for the Arts. And Aaron Barnes is co-founder and executive director of IO, um, IOBI and will give us tips on community engagement and crowd resourcing for change. First up is Cindy Adams who has decades of experience as a fundraiser. Through her organization, GrantStation, she helps nonprofits raise funds through grants with a deep understanding of funders and the philanthropic field. She'll lead us off with an overview of key funding trends and how they affect communities and organizations looking for funding. Thank you, Cindy. Go ahead with your overview. Oh, thank you very much, Fran, and thank you for inviting me today. It's, this is going to be great fun. Um, let me dive right in because I have a lot to share in a very, very limited amount of time. So let me just begin by saying that I'm I'm fairly confident by the year 2020, philanthropy not only, you know, in the U.S., but throughout the world uh, will really wear a new face. And these changes will open an, an expanded door of opportunity in the area of grant-seeking for nonprofit organizations, educational institutions, and even regional governments. So there's going to be a global sort of sensibility combined with a, an array of um, innovative technologies and attitudinal changes on the part of philanthropists that will 
really birth a new way and perhaps a new wave of giving. And we're, we're witnessing many of these changes today. So with that in mind, I'd like to talk about a few very specific trends and how these trends can affect the grant applications that all of you um, may be submitting in the next, you know, several months or a year to support the good work that you're doing. So let's start with how technology is changing the face of grant seeking and grant making. More and more grant makers are engaging in social media, you know, sharing information with grant seekers that has previously been really only for the privileged few. And so this is a really positive trend. It's, it's a trend I wish would have happened 10 years ago, but it's happening now. And it demonstrates the grant makers' um, inclination towards transparency and giving those of us seeking funding more information so we understand what their what their goals and what their objectives are. And this means you have, you know, you now really have the opportunity to learn more about what the funder is trying to achieve. It's um an inside look, you know. So reviewing the funder's social media, Facebook, Twitter, you know, if they have a blog, um, those kinds of things, that now plays and this is new, an important role as you research and really analyze each grant maker to see if they are indeed the right grant maker to approach. Um, a variety of technologies has begun to crop up for everything from, you know, online eligibility quizzes to submitting letters of inquiry and even full grant requests via the net. So online grantee reporting is really almost commonplace now, even with the federal government and communication with the grant maker themselves has never been as easy nor as productive. We used to ha have full classes on how to talk with the grant maker and now it's, it can be a simple email. So having a staff member or volunteer that can help you, you know, develop web grant applications is going to become more and more important. And if you want an example of where this trend is going, I want you to check out um, the application for the New Music USA Awards. Um, instead of filling out a grant application, they ask you to create a simple project page on their site with all of the artist's work samples and project information. And then these pages, they you know, they remain invisible to the public, of course, through the course of the whole review and decision process. But nonetheless, instead of writing the grant application, you're building a web page. I mean, it is your grant application. So that's, that's a huge change and a trend that we, we need to be aware of as we move forward. I've also noticed, and this is becoming more and more prevalent, that the IT person is getting a seat at the table when it comes to reviewing grant requests, simply because there are, you know, are so many requests with technology components and reviewers feel that they need advice, you know, from someone who can analyze these pieces of the proposal. So this means to you that you need to really carefully develop the IT part of any grant request as a, as a you know, knowledgeable person will be analyzing it on the other end. So budget detail and budget justification is very important in this section of, of a grant proposal. The, um, <clears throat> I'd say, you know, while the, you know, while this increased um, interest in use of social media and a variety of technologies, you know, online applications, et cetera, are really the most noticeable changes, there are also 
numerous attitudinal changes happening within the field of philanthropy. So, for example, in the past and even today, when we think of scale, you know, we, we, we equate it to big. So, for example, it has always been difficult for a small community to secure a substantial grant award from a national funder, whether it's a federal government an agency or a private grant maker, because they just didn't serve enough people or their community or organization was just too small. Tomorrow, when we talk about scale, we will equate it to networked. In fact, you're starting to see this trend really blossom now, and we're quickly starting to recognize that problems get solved through, you know, small pieces loosely coupled, hence the importance of collaborations and coalitions to help generate funding for any sort of program or project that you have. Really thinking collaboratively um, really completely changes the way you approach a problem, and, and ultimately it changes the outcome. And I guarantee the grant maker will sit up and take notice when you submit your grant request and you indicate you have a number of organizations working together. Which brings us to another interesting trend. Um, as we all know, funders have consistently insisted on funding a program or a project and seldom provide the money to an organization so they can simply address their mission. And we used to say it's hard to find general operating money. Now the trend, of course, is to say, um, is to use the words, address your mission. So yeah, be aware of that. Um, I'm sort of chuckling because these, the way they change the, the language around these things is interesting. Um, but grant makers have always measured, you know, really uh, efforts instead of impact. So in other words, grant makers were mainly concerned with how much you intended to get done, not, not really the... Um, outcome of those efforts. So this sort of short-term thinking is, as we all know, um, very unsustainable. You know, just witness the last hundred years of federal grant making in the United States, right? This is a change most of us are aware of. Grant makers are looking for outcomes now and not so much concerned with the efforts alone. But over the past year or so, there are a growing number of grant makers in the U.S. and Canada that are looking to change even more. Now, this this is a very, very new trend, so tread lightly here, but it's starting to gain momentum. And that trend is for grant makers to make substantive, multi-year investments in an organization. They're looking to provide access to what they're calling flexible capital over multiple years. Sounds good, huh? This allows grantees the freedom to focus on what they need to do in order to achieve performance. And another trend that I think is particularly important for those of you looking to implement a new community plan or a new community design, just, you know, to stay ahead of the curve, now is the time to position the outcomes of your, your grant request as community assets. So let me say that again. You want to position the outcomes of your plan, your design, as community assets. So it's just a, it's a change in terminology. It's a, it's a different way of looking at it. Some wonderful ways to use visuals to demonstrate this idea clearly in a grant request. And I show several of these, and I will be showing several of these um, samples in a webinar that I'm doing with um, Orton. Um, in, I think it's January 30th. It's called Funding Rural America. So you might want to note that on your calendars. At a conference 
in Washington, D.C. just last month. Nancy Rube, she's with the Edna McConnell Clark Foundation, was one of the keynote speakers, and she said, and I'm quoting, philanthropy is reinventing itself to be bolder and more investment-oriented. And then she went on to cover a number of new trends in philanthropy, including one that seems to be gaining momentum with both private and public grant makers. They want to invest in evidence building. So what's that mean? I mean, their thinking is pretty straightforward. They're looking for, they're thinking that high-performing nonprofits are data-driven and effective nonprofits use data for improvement. So, well, you know, what does that mean to you? It means grant makers are investing in nonprofits that will be, in part, using funds to track how they are doing, how they are performing. So, in other words, they're open to funding the evaluation component of a request. And, you know, that's not entirely new. Many, many grant makers have been doing that for years. Here's the big new change. Grant makers are, and remember, this is a new trend, so again, you know, it's just catching on. Grant makers are allowing you to change course if needed. You know, what a concept. Just as there are large sort of overarching trends in philanthropy, um, there are many smaller trends, maybe even more applicable trends for your work. But don't, even though this is sort of a, in the, in the cloud yet, so to speak, remember that grant makers, very, very few right now, but some of them are allowing you to change course if you, if you need to in the midst of your project. So you're implementing your plan, you run into something you didn't expect, and they allow you to change course and not take the money away. It's just a really good thing to understand. But again, there's maybe some smaller, maybe more applicable trends to your work um, that you might want to be aware of. Let me just uh, add here just a quick note about government grant-making trends. Trends trends in government grant-making are funny. It takes, like, ha-ha. It takes a long time for a trend to pick up speed, and then it's the trend, you know, for a good long time before something else takes its place. So change is very slow in the government and probably as it should be. But I would say collaboration as well as um, interdisciplinary teamwork is what I've seen a ton of federal grant agencies looking for in applications over the past year or two. And so as the pot of federal dollars continues to decline, government agencies really want to know that you are doing everything you can to benefit the maximum number of individuals. That's why collaboration is paramount for those of you just serving a neighborhood or a small community. Now, let me quickly speak to specific trends in data collection and interpretation that really will affect the work being done by all of you. There is a new wave of interactive websites that provide the ability to add your own data. So that could be data about, you know, your own organization, your budget, or the services you're offering, or about your community, or about your neighborhood, or your borough, or your county. It's, 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 these are websites where you can add your own data, and, and then that data is linked to other data, allowing you to compare your, your statistics with others. And this kind of self-fed, um, accessible data is sort of the new starting line for developing a very robust need statement and helping to paint a clear picture of your particular situation. 
an example of this, and I talked with um, Jen um, from NEA about this a couple of days ago, is the Cultural Data Project, which focuses on arts, culture, and humanities. And this site, as with many of these types of sites, needs time, really, to mature. But it's certainly growing in the right direction. And there's another site. Um, there's a tool called Financial Scan. It's often via GuideStar. And you can look at your, you know, you can look at your own organization's finances, finances over time and pull directly from your own IRS 990 form um, or put in your own numbers. And Financial Scan can be used as a sort of a one-off analytical tool or as a regular part of due diligence, um, you know, comparing reports for board meetings or something like that or as a capacity building tool, you know, comparing where you are today um, and comparing with yourself with other like organizations to, you know, to really determine where you should be going. It's also great for regional or issue-based planning. So these new data platforms, and again, I'll talk more about these in the Funding Rural America webinar later this month, but these new data platforms as well as a number of others represent really, you know, very real progress toward a data backbone for nonprofits and philanthropy. But these are all relatively new tools which need testing and refining. And, you know, if I were you, I would identify one or two of these tools, start using them now while they're still in their growing period, and, you know, within months you will become adept at mashing data yourself. It's kind of fun. Um, and it's also can help you paint a picture of your own circumstances wherever you are in the United States or in Canada and, and really deliver um, good, accurate information to the grant maker when they're trying to make a decision whether they should fund you or not. So your job now is to research these tools and find new ways to compare, analyze, and present the data that most accurately reflects not only your organization but the community with whom you work. Okay. Let me just sum up by saying it's time to sell your mission. Not your program, not your project, but your vision. Your vision of what you want to change in this world. And to share with the grant maker how you intend to measure the outcomes and how those outcomes you know, become assets of the community once this grant maker invests in your plan. Again, I'll talk more in depth about um, a lot of this, especially about specific grant makers and you know how you find the money to fund your community plans in my webinar on funding rural America later this month. Ben, um, I'll turn it back to you. <laughs> Fantastic, Cindy. Thank you so much. Uh, from Cindy, we go on to Jennifer Hughes. She is a design specialist for the National Endowment of the Arts, and she will clue us in about federal funding, NEA grant opportunities, and tips for competitive applications. Welcome, Jen. Go ahead. Thank you so much, and thank you, Cindy, for that fantastic introduction um, to the major trends happening in the grant-making and funders' world. I am really excited to be here, and with limited time, I, too, will dive right in. Specifically, I'll kick off by just sharing a bit about the National Endowment for the Arts programs that um, organizations are eligible to apply to, and point you to a lot of great resources that we have on our website and upcoming webinars as well. And then I, I'd like to just take a few minutes as well to talk about some of those trends that are really pervasive um, throughout the federal government and what we are looking for at the NEA and other federal agencies for those competitive grant applications. 
So just in case folks out there are not familiar with the National Endowment for the Arts, which I'll refer to as the NEA, it is, was established by Congress in 1965 as an independent agency of the federal government. And to date, the NEA has awarded more than $4 billion to support artistic excellence, creativity, and innovation for the benefit of individuals and communities. So we really truly support artistic excellence and design excellence in two ways, through leadership to the field and some of the programs such as the Citizens Institute on Rural Design, and through grants to nonprofit 501c3 organizations, government entities, and federally recognized tribes. From the leadership side, um, we have a range of special initiatives that provide assistance to the field. The Citizens Institute on Rural Design provides communities access to the resources they need to convert their own good ideas into reality. We offer annual competitive funding to as many as four small towns or rural communities to host a two and a half day community design workshop. So this really offers support for a lot of the small communities throughout rural America, um, access to design experts, planning and creative placemaking professionals, and it brings together local leaders from nonprofits, community organizations, and government to develop actionable solutions to the community's most pressing challenges. So we will have an open call to communities to apply um, to host one of these four workshops Later this year, um, in March, we will be releasing that. So I just encourage you to go on to rural-design.org to monitor that opportunity. Similarly, we have another leadership institute at the National Endowment for the Arts through the Mayor's Institute on City Design. And that is um, the city counterpart to our Citizens Institute Rural Program. And that has really trained more than 900 mayors over the last 26 years to be chief urban designers of their communities, really inculcating the need and importance and value of good design in our cities and communities across America, and that being one of the most lasting legacies that mayors leave behind. And now I'll speak a little bit to what probably all of you are most interested in hearing and what the NEA is mostly known for, which is our direct grants to organizations. So we fund everything from urban design and architecture projects, performances, public art, arts festivals, um, design and planning activities. And this takes place through our three programs here at the NEA, our R-Town Creative Placemaking Grant Program, which actually has a looming deadline of January 13th. Our artwork grant program, which um, offers ten dollars to $100,000 in funding to nonprofit 501c3 organizations, government entities, or federally recognized tribes for a particular proposal or project, as well as our Challenge America Fast Track program, which has um, upcoming deadlines this year. So, one of the things that uh, Cindy and I spoke to actually in length prior to this conversation is one of the true values of obtaining a federal grant is that it, it provides you with a lot of leverage in accessing other foundations and sources of funding. And it also gets you on the radar of the federal grants, um, of the federal governments overall. So one thing that's really been a priority for this administration is to focus programs particularly on place. 
um, and to make sure that the federal government is providing both technical assistance and direct grant funding for local communities to execute their plans. So I would just say if you um, haven't applied for a federal grant opportunity before, um, certainly it's a worthwhile investment of your time to explore. And there are lots of great people um, within the federal government who are really open and willing to, to help talk you through that process. Um, so one of the things that I just wanted to echo that I heard in Cindy's conversation was that you know, there has been this movement within the federal government as well, specifically in NEA's strategic plan, to really shift towards pushing our grant applicants and grantees to monitor and discuss intended outcomes rather than outputs. Um, historically, we trust the progress and success of grants um, contingent upon the number of audience members that might have sat in or witnessed a particular performance, perhaps the number of new sculptures that were commissioned as part of a public art project. But now the federal government is really more interested in understanding those outcomes. So what impact did the work and the project that is being funded have? How was it transformative in the community? What was the impact or growth that resulted from a particular investment, um, whether it be in educational attainment, in um, you know, increased levels of civic engagement, a reduction in crime, a change in perception. Those are the types of things you really want to think through, and you'll see in the grant applications, particularly at the NEA, that we ask for those outcomes to be identified and for you to speak to how you anticipate your project will achieve those outcomes. So that's something that is very helpful. Also, I can echo 100% that federal government funders are really interested in those collaborative partnerships. Um, you know, we have, through our Creative Placemaking Our Town grant program, which has been around for the past uh, three years, and we're beginning our, our fourth cycle of funding, is really invested and interested in those partnerships between arts partners, community members, local businesses, real estate developers, perhaps um, you know transportation or transit authorities, even many of those unexpected non-arts partners really coming together to do something that fits into the broader civic vision for that community. So the importance of showing that widespread support is something that is highly valued. And I think one of the advantages that um, smaller towns across the country really has is that there is a close connectedness and a real strong sense of community. So gathering together the many facets of that community can really make a, a powerful and strong grant application where it might be drawing on the various expertise that each of those segments might offer. And then lastly, I just wanted to mention another federal grant making trend, and that is really that um, Implementation dollars to execute on a project follows thoughtful planning. So, for example, we offer the Citizens Institute on Rural Design, which is really about technical assistance for a community to think through a planning issue that they might have. And a prime example of one that has been really successful is um, a Citizens Institute was held in Driggs, Idaho, a couple years back. And out of that planning effort, they applied for future, future grant funding through the uh, Our Town Creative Placemaking Program and were able to secure funding to 
redesign um, and hire designers and architects and landscape architects to rethink their plaza and civic space in the center of town and how that might be used for arts activities in the future. And what was so compelling about their grant application was that they had done the due diligence with the community members to really think through what the priorities were for the community and how this one piece and the role of the design and redesign of this public space really was something quite monumental for the town and there was a lot of community support for. So that's something certainly to keep in mind is you know, technical assistance funding as well as planning funding can be really valuable in laying the groundwork for obtaining future grants. And lastly, and I'm sure this is something we'll get to a bit in the questions, so I won't dwell on it too much, but there are other federal grant programs um, I would certainly encourage you to look into. The United States Department of Agriculture, Rural Development, they have some fantastic programs, including a program that offers community facilities funding that has gone towards art centers. Um, there are also other economic development initiatives that might be funded or supported by the Economic Development Administration within the Department of Commerce. And again, what's, what's great about those federal um, government programs and organizations is they have a lot of local staff that are out in the field to really serve those local communities. So if you have informed a relationship with those individuals, I would certainly encourage you to seek them out and get on their radar as well, because you would most likely be surprised by the breadth of programs that they offer in terms of funding support for arts, design, technical assistance projects and programs. So with that, I just want to sum up and pass it on to the next presenter, Erin. Okay. Thank you so much, Jen. Uh, this is Fran again from Morton. Thank you for all those concrete examples and um, uh, really good tips. Uh, so our final speaker um, on this panel is Aaron Barnes, and we're, we're going to get to your questions for Cindy, Jen, and Aaron um, after uh, we hear from Aaron. She is the co-founder and executive director of IOBI. It's a crowd resourcing platform for citizen-led neighborhood projects that combines crowdfunding and resource organizing. I'll let her explain it more. I'm sure we're all so interested in, in something that's really quite new and exciting. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks. Yeah, Hi, so everybody. Um, tell us about IOB and crowdfunding. Sure. Um, so uh, before we get started, I just wanted to make sure that everybody's on the same page um, and uh, start with a working definition of crowdfunding. So when I use the word crowdfunding, I'm referring to the pooling of lots of small donations made online to a single cause or organization. Um, a lot of people refer to the first um, act of civic crowdfunding in this country as the um, funding of the base of the Statue of Liberty in 1884, um, when a lot of New Yorkers gave on average $1 um, to raise a million dollars to put the foundation down for the Statue of Liberty to be received from France. Um, that uh, was not done online, um, and it was a long time ago. So um, when we think about crowdfunding, we're usually talking about uh, more modern uh, online examples. Um, so 
Uh, I usually think of the first one as um, donors choose, which many people have used um, if they're teachers or parents. Um, this will be a familiar platform to you. Um, donors choose launched in 2000 as a tool to help teachers raise funds for um, school supplies in uh, schools in poor areas. Um, in 2004, Kiva launched a similar looking platform um, that's the microfinance loans um, for entrepreneurs in uh, developing countries. Um, and then uh, around uh, 2008 and 2009, a lot of new platforms, including IOB um, uh, and other platforms launched um, and the word crowdfunding started coming into use. Um, so. I think a lot of people have heard a lot about crowdfunding because of popularities of platforms like Kickstarter and Indiegogo. Um, and in 2013, I think that there was an estimated $5 billion given through all the platforms altogether. Um, so there's a lot of interest and a lot of use of these platforms that happen very quickly. Um, and we tend to get a lot of um, the same types of questions from folks about these types of platforms. So um, I think that... Um, before I sort of dive into those questions, I wanted to just take one minute to um, talk a little bit about IOB and why crowd resourcing is slightly different than crowdfunding. So as mentioned, uh, crowd resourcing is an idea of blending crowdfunding and resource organizing. And what we mean by that is that IOB is an online platform designed to help you uh, collect uh, tax-deductible donations, but also organize other types of capital, social capital, in-kind donations, volunteer support, and idea sharing from within the community where the project is actually taking place. Um, so IOB's mission is around supporting citizen-led, neighbor-funded projects. Uh, the name comes from the opposite of NIMBY, and some people say it stands for In Our Backyards. Um, and so when we're talking about crowd resourcing, we're talking about using the assets of the community where the project is taking place rather than um, receiving donations from sort of like a random group of individuals found in the, in the ether of the Internet. Um, so now... Uh, diving right in, I think a lot of people want to know who is best to suited to use crowdfunding. Um, and the short answer is that anyone can use a crowdfunding platform. Uh, we see it's best used when individuals team up with others um, to start and launch new ideas or new projects. Um, but I also think that it's a tool equally um, good for community groups who may be doing the same type of work over and over, but only need to be sustained by a small amount of funding every year. So, for example, um, we work with an organization in Staten Island that every single year reenacts St. George and the Dragon in one of their parks. And every year they need a couple thousand dollars for the materials for this um, big parade of dragons and to reenact the play. Um, and they raise the funds every year on IOB and are able to execute it. And that's the only program they have of the entire year. Um, other groups are using um, IOB to launch brand new projects or organizations, um, and they're using it for startup capital. Um, and that's a really popular way to use crowdfunding as well. Um, and I'm, I think a lot of people are interested if governments can use crowdfunding, um, and if so, how. Um, we work with a lot of urban planners who use crowdfunding in their free time outside of work uh, to do work that they wouldn't normally be able to do at their jobs. Um, but we also partner with organizations or governments like Miami-Dade County and the city of Memphis um, that have brought IOB to their area to start of um, 
uh, organize and catalyze new projects that can be funded through the crowd um, and then support the work of government agencies. Um, if you're thinking about doing a crowdfunding project, I encourage you to think of it as you would other development activities. Uh, you need someone who's going to be a key um, leader on the project. Uh, you need staff or a team to support it. It doesn't have to be a paid staff, but there needs to be some work in there. Um, and you need to identify who your base of supporters is. Across most platforms, about 60 to 80 percent of the donors come from the base of people of the people leading the projects, and 20 to 40 percent come from new donors that you acquire through the process of crowdfunding. Um, when you are thinking about using crowdfunding, um, remember that it is a single development tool among many, and you should think about planning your use of the crowdfunding campaign inside of other things that you might already have planned. Um, it's a great engagement tool um, if you're trying to reach new users, maybe um, younger donors. Um, perhaps you have a match campaign that you want to take advantage of and um, use to incentivize uh, new donor support. It's a great way to raise startup capital, as I mentioned. Um, it's also a great way to build leverage or um, build credibility in the eyes of grant makers. If you have something that's like really untested and nobody's ever seen before, you can prove that you've got community support and buy-in and a lot of other people believe in your work. Um, it could be uh, a tactical approach uh, to top off uh, a sort of funding that you may have secured a lot of but need a little bit more and can't wait around. Uh, we worked with one project in, um, in Memphis uh, where they were raising $4.5 million for um, a really innovative new bike lane to connect uh, to green lanes. And they had raised 95% uh, of the budget but needed to raise that final 5%, and they crowdfunded the last $78,000 on IOB. Um, but it's also a really important way to raise money for really boring things, um, things that typically would fall into the categories of admin or overhead because you are seeking individual support for your work. Um, and so uh, that's an un a source of unrestricted funding, and that's really important to remember. So a lot of people are trying to find, like, whatever is the coolest, hippest new project that they can pitch to people. Um, but you don't necessarily need to create something new to have a crowdfunding campaign. It's about presenting your work and what you need the most funding for um, in a way that's understandable to your donors. Um, everyone wants to know what the secrets of a good fundraising campaign are, um, and the truth is, is that there aren't really any secrets. Um, it's about applying the concepts of good grassroots fundraising, any other type of individual fundraising activities you've ever done, and applying it to an online context. Um, at IOB, we teach a course called Fast Cash that blends concepts of grassroots fundraising and online communications and all of the best practices that we've collected from all of our most successful project leaders um, into a sort of um, package in designing your own uh, IOB campaign. Um, but it's really just about knowing what your vision is and understanding what your potential supporters believe and see in you, um, articulating your ask and telling your story well and engaging your donors so that they'll not only give to you but also reach out to their network socially um, and get others to join in. Um, crowdfunding is a lot like and can feel like having a donate button on your website, but it's important to remember that it's about having a short, discreet campaign that's time-bound, um, and you're trying to build um, support around something that does have an end date. Um, and so in many ways, I think about running a crowdfunding campaign as being very similar to throwing an event. You know that at the end, it's going to happen, um, but you have to build up a lot of support to get there. Um, I encourage you, if you're considering um, 
doing crowdfunding, uh, there's a lot of platforms out there. Um, uh, very few of them are run by nonprofit organizations. Fewer um, are designed to support tax-deductible donations. So consider the fit and eligibility of the platform before you get started. Think about fees, what the platform's failure or success rates are, um, if the platform is going to support your work, um, if there's mission alignment, and if there's any other benefits to using the platform besides the actual um, organization of funding. Um, and so I'll stop there. Uh, thanks very much. Thank you so much, Erin. Uh, and we'll get back to their more um, very specific questions about crowdfunding. So that was a great overview of what's going on in that field and, and how to get go going on it. Um, I also want to uh, just welcome all of our listeners. We had uh, over 350 registrants. Um, not sure how many are on the call, but welcome uh, from Alaska to Florida and everywhere in between and some in Canada. Uh, it's great to have you on this uh, Community Matters call. Uh, please uh, make sure you can get into the Google Doc. Um, if you're in it as an editor and are, have already written your question, please get out and refresh the Google Doc. Um, you can also refresh the Google Doc anytime if there are problems. But we, we do love it when you add um, your thoughts and suggestions on that document, which you'll be able to do also following this call. Uh, we are going um, an extra 15 minutes today, so we will be going until about a quarter uh, past the hour, and because we have just tons of your questions. So I'm going to start a number of people, and, and one of the things that is great about these calls is people can call in from the smallest of rural communities, and many people do, and so often we do get questions about um, raising uh, money for small-scale community projects or small towns. Uh, our first question up from Melissa, um, this is probably in a, in a town or in a city, how do you raise funds for small-scale community projects within a highly impoverished, uh, with a highly impoverished population? Cindy, you want to tackle that? Sure, of course. I think this is where you're thinking about what your, re your project will result in, you know, what, what assets you're going to be building for the community becomes really important. Um, part of the of the key here is to make sure the community, especially those living in poverty, are represented as you make decisions. So you want to make sure that your grant proposal and the grant makers that you're going to um, realize that your representation um, for making decisions in your community um, it, you know, represents those those minority or those impoverished populations, the the the, the poorest of the poor. And then you can go after something like the Campaign for Human Development, which is a Catholic church fund, and which is a, a great fund, by the way, if you guys don't know about it. It's, um, you don't have to have, your project has, doesn't have to have anything to do with the Catholic church. Um, I think all you need at, at some point is a, a letter from the local bishop that endorses the project. But basically, it's to help the poorest of the poor. But again, you have to have representation or some kind of decision-making um, a way for for those that are impoverished to make help make decisions on what's going to happen um, in, in your community. So demonstrating that the project is really supported by the community is going to open many many doors when it comes to grant seeking. Right. Thank you, Cindy. Um, and Jen, you might want to tackle this one. Um, Elaine uh, from Colorado. It, it speaks to the difficulty of getting large funding for small towns under populations of 2,000 or so, 
And while these areas seem to me need the most assistance because they lack local government infrastructure or paid staff, uh, nonprofits have small budgets, uh, there are really some very basic needs um, in these smaller populations. In, in addition, she says, the small fundraising drains volunteers' energy. Uh, so she asked, what are the best ways to get on the radar of government and private foundations so they'll see the needs in remote and sparsely populated areas? Jen? Great. Yeah, thank you. That's an excellent, excellent question. And I can speak specifically from the NEA's perspective is that um, the way that we conduct the reviews of, of grant opportunities that come into the NEA, so applications, is we have a separate panel to compare rural projects. So projects specifically in smaller communities that they are being compared with their counterparts versus um, you know, a, a small town of, say, a 1,000 people to New York City, for example. So that is certainly a priority of the federal government to make sure that we are providing an equitable review of grant applications. Other suggestions I really can make for that is, you know, there are some great programs out there uh, that provide technical assistance and would certainly be excited and eager to work with your community and begin to help think through some of those challenges or issues. Um, you know, one thing that I always tell folks to do is that your state arts councils are exceptional resources in thinking through arts and design, um, pointing you to the correct resources that might be available on a local level. So certainly lean on that or those organizations in your state. Universities and colleges often have some excellent relationships on the ground with perhaps the local community design center, or there might be a particular student project or class project that might be able to take on the issues that your community is facing. So that can also be a great partner to lean on to help think through, um, you know, perhaps the very beginning initial ideas for a plan that might sort of build and snowball and lead to accessing uh, funding through foundations or the federal governments in the future. And, you know, lastly, one true advantage that I'll say that rural communities do have, and I mentioned this in my, my remarks, is that um, smaller communities seem to have a lot of cohesiveness. And the fact that, you know, community members, perhaps the political leadership, local businesses, um, local artists and designers, may have a shared vision for their community and might already be working together and know each other. So really fostering and bringing folks together um, to each contribute their piece and their expertise is something that also can be really valuable and an asset in how you might position your project to future funders. Um, there are also industry associations like the American Planning Association offers great technical assistance programs for communities of all shapes and sizes to really help get the ball rolling and, and get you started in thinking about those. And I'll be sure afterwards to, to post some additional resources of those technical assistance programs that are particularly geared towards small communities on the Google Doc. Terrific, Jen. Thank you so much. Um, there, there are also a number of people asked about getting interested, how to get funders interested in parks. And uh, so there's, there's one very specific question from Anne from Arizona, asked how to get funders interested in a park located in a small rural town, but that park may have regional significance to public lands within a 30-mile radius. 
Uh, Cindy, you want to talk to us about parks and how to get funding for them? Uh, yeah, there's, um, I mean, there's a number, actually, a number of really good resources that you can go to, uh, funding sources that love to fund parks, um, private funding sources, everything from, you know, the, it depends what the park's going to be. Let's say it's going to be a park that has a, a playground in it, and it maybe has a baseball field and maybe a soccer field and and then, and then there, you know, some trails that people can ride bikes on and that kind of thing. If that's what it is, then, you know, something like the Baseball Tomorrow Fund, and there's this wonderful um, Bridgestone in America's Trust Fund that gives to, to certain communities, and they, they build parks. Um, so there's a lot of grant sources out there that do that. But I wanted to um, go back to something that Jen said earlier. There is a project that she mentioned that happened in Driggs, Idaho, many years ago, and that um, community was located next to a national park. And, and, and Jen, you can jump in if you want, but I think it was Teton. Uh, mm -hmm. Teton. Yeah, it was Teton. And what they did, um, if you get a chance, any of you out there, take a, take a look at the Driggs, Idaho. Um, I don't know if they have it on their website. Do you have it on your on your website Then the yeah. We did. We did a big feature on it, so I can add that to the Google Docs as well. So um, it was actually quite an interesting thing, what they did. But that was because the what they were trying to do was located near a park, you know, a national park. Um, but if you're just trying to find funding for your own organization in in a very specific, you know, trying to build a little park in your community, then I think there is a lot of um, private funding sources out there. You just have to decide, you know, what are you, what are you doing? You're looking for playground equipment or baseball fields or whatever. Is this funders that fund just baseball or soccer fields and playground equipment is donated? And, and there's a lot of those kinds of funders out there. Great. Thank you, Cindy. And, and we're finding you're breaking up just a little bit, so uh, we'll keep an eye on that. But um, I, I think I think it's okay for now. Um, yeah. And this is Jen. Could I just add, add yeah, to sure. Cindy's comments? Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that I think is really interesting and that parks are really achieving a lot of healthy and active living goals, um, so oftentimes even providing food sources for the local community. So certainly seeking out those unexpected places that might be funding or supporting um, local parks is something I would also encourage. I know that um, the U.S. Department of Agricultural certainly funds various types of, um, you know, local food markets and local food gardens. That might be a source to look to. Uh, the National Park Service has a program called Rivers, Trails, and Conservation Assistance, and that's, that's worth getting to know. Um, so it, it's an opportunity to receive technical assistance from staff there who are conservation and recreation planners. And the, the best part is, is applicant communities do not have to have a National Park Service connection. So that's also something to, to think about. And those opportunities where there might be an overlap with healthy or active living and activities um, might be something that is fundable out of, you know, the Department of Health and Human Services that has a real interest in decreasing obesity and increasing active living. And she's, yeah, Sam, she's absolutely right. She's right on the money here. And, uh, you know, obesity prevention is a big key word out there right now. And and a lot of the grant makers that were originally just interested in health have now really migrated to 
um, doing exactly what Jen's saying, which is funding these open spaces and spaces where people can go out and, you know, participate in sports or play in the playground or go on bike rides or whatever. So obesity prevention, community gardens, those are all key words in doing these kinds of re the kind of research you need to do to find this funding. Terrific. And I, and I think um, uh, Akila has also asked about what types of projects the government is most likely to give money to and what would be reasons for not funding a project. My, my sense is, is that if, they just, if people just keep listening, they'll hear the types of projects, in, including this re recreation and um, working with obesity. Are there other just things that just one or two things that come top of mind of types of projects that the government that, that are very popular right now for funding or ones that are no longer um, really getting the funding? Well, I would say that um, one thing that's really been a thread in my experience across this administration it, within the federal government is the openness and looking to local communities who know best in how to execute and think through the issues that are facing their communities. Um, to propose those projects. So I would say there's a real openness. I can't point to a particular trend. And I think, like Cindy said, it's really all about doing some of that creative research to try to see where some of your project ideas for your community might align. And then positioning your project to address those specific guidelines is really key. Okay. Thanks a lot. I, just so we, we make sure that we cover all the topics, I want to jump down to uh, forming partnerships. And Kristen from Montana is looking for best practices for really gaining full community support and buy-in on a project um, to really to show potential funders that the that there is community backing and collaboration. So are there some best practices, Cindy, that you might recommend um, and or, you know, Aaron might want to jump in here about really proving that the community is backing these projects? I think that uh, there's, you know, money money speaks really loudly. And so I, I think we've seen in a, a lot of different cases groups uh, launch brand new ideas, typically sort of like tactical urbanism pro projects, lighter, cheaper, quicker, things that wouldn't normally um, come across the radar of like a, a typical RFP or maybe even fit into a grant pro program, um, and use crowdfunding to show that there is a ton of community support for it, maybe even implement like a pilot or a demonstration project um, to sort of just show what things are going to look like. Um, and then we've actually, for a few cases where people were really trying to prove community backing for something that was just difficult to, to show support for, um, we've generated a bunch of donor maps. Um, one in particular was the 78th Street Play Street in Jackson Heights, Queens, where um, a lot of, uh, all of the donors basically uh, to support closing a street to car traffic and opening up as a playground um, were living within like uh, half a mile of the project site. Um, and the map just shows sort of like all of these donors clustered around the site. Um, and it was a really compelling way to show that the community supported the project. Um, they did it year after year and now the street is permanently closed to car traffic and is opened up as a play street um, and acquired even adjacent property to, to, as open space as well. Um, and it's been a great success story, and there's others that are similar to that, too. Um, so, yeah, I think crowdfunding can, can be useful in that sense. Great. I would just, yeah, I would just add that years ago, many, many years ago, um, 
you know, before we were using the internet for fundraising, but one way to show community support, especially in a small community where there's not a lot of um, research, there's not a lot of money, uh, you can do what I call the um, a dollar campaign. You get everyone in the community you can get to give you a dollar. And if it's 800 people in the community, yeah, you only raise $800, but the point is that you've got full community support. And if you're working with an impoverished um, community, it, it shows something about it that rings so true with grant makers when they read this. So I, I think it's a sort of a bright way to, to approach uh, showing community support if you can do it. Well, well even um, Cindy Jenny from Texas uh, says that she's from a very small rural town of 5,000 people, and she's thinking of putting together a 501c3 um, Friends of Main Street uh, to help with fundraising and support the downtown district. Is 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 that a good idea? Um, it actually is a good idea. Um, I mean, I think it's a wise move. It allows her to not only apply for funds that she might not otherwise be able to apply for, but it also expands um, the partnership, you know, the partnership with the community. Um, I might not call it uh, maybe, you know, Friends of Main Street or something like that. You might want to think of something more inclusive or broader or something. Um, but we've all, you know, we've all heard of you know, the Friends of the Library um, or the Friends of the Library Foundation or something like that. And we know their sole purpose is to raise money for the library. The sole purpose of your, your friends group may be to raise funds for a Main Street project but it may also be something broader. So you really just think about and, and consider how this second group might not only be a good conduit to help um, raise funds, but how this second group could add a new perspective you know, to your projects. Maybe you, you build this board with a different type of person than serves on the main street board. Um, and maybe you create a mission that talks about sustainability and building a healthy community or some such. Um, yeah, so I think it's a good idea. I think it's a wise move to, if you are a 501c3 to create one that you can work with um, easily. It suggests a true community discussion on the topic, and that's just where you probably need to go. Great. Thank you, Cindy. And um, actually, under specific funding needs, to get um, back to Jen, somebody asked about how to fund um, uh, create a cultural arts center. And that, that's something very specific but does that use the same uh, partnerships and crowdsourcing to go after getting a cultural arts center in your town? Sure. I think that's a great question. And my first advice um, when any community is really thinking through a cultural arts center is to do some real thoughtful planning and thinking through the feasibility of the center, how it might be run and maintained, um, and to ask those questions up front as, terms, as to assess, you know, how sustainable of an investment really must be made in this physical place or structure. And then as a, a carry-on to that, the National Endowment for the Arts, we consider um, designers and architects to be conducting artistic practice. So we can actually fund the design fees associated with um, from conceptual ideas through schematic and construction documents. But the real key here in, in gaining that support to actually fund um, conceptual and schematic design is to demonstrate a true need in the community and some thoughtful planning in advance as to how it might 
operate in the future. And we have some great examples of cultural arts centers and cultural facilities that have been funded through our Our Town Creative Placemaking Grant Program up on our website. Um, one in particular that comes to mind is in Glencoe, Illinois, uh, outside of Chicago, to fund um, the Writers' Theater in a design of a new facility where they will perform. So the Our Town funding is really to support final design and construction documents for a new cultural facility, theater, and community venue in downtown Glencoe. And what was really compelling about that project is they had some really forward-thinking designers, including architect Jeannie Gang, but also had a lot of support beyond just the arts community for this project to move forward and be a true success. Another great resource is also the United States Department of Agriculture's Rural Development Community Facilities Funding Program. And they offer, um, I believe, both loans and grants to actually uh, construct community facilities. And that might take the form of an arts or cultural center. And there was a webinar hosted in 2012 discussing this opportunity. So I will also remember to add that onto the Google document as a link to explore. Terrific, Jen. This is going to be a very well-resourced um, uh, Google Doc. I, I'd like to get back to um, Aaron. I'm sure people are still very interested in crowdfunding and how that works. And I think a very interesting question came in from Marissa from Georgia. Um, she says a number of local governments may need to know how funding raised through crowdfunding funnel through their system and how they are managed. Is it more difficult for local governments to do crowdfunding, uh, or and is it is it is it more appropriate for um, smaller, more individual organizations? That's a really interesting question. Um, I can only really tell you how IOB manages disbursement um, because we're a 501c3 and um, we act as a fiscal conduit for projects as well. Uh, we typically have only disbursed funds to individuals and 501c3s and then fiscally sponsored 501c3s. Otherwise, we act as a type C fiscal sponsor to projects. And so we've never dispersed any funds to um, government agencies before. Um, I believe that there is one platform designed specifically for government agencies to use, but I don't actually know anything about how disbursement is managed. Um, so, uh, and it also, I think, depending on the platform, uh, there's different disbursement rules depending on what type of tax status your entity is. I'm sorry, I can't give a better answer. Oh, that's okay. You know, just one other while, while we've got you, uh, there's another organization who has observed um, that the enthusiasm of crowdfunding appears to be waning. Is that the case or is it just certain types of things that that aren't a good fit? That's a good question. I've I've heard some of that too. And you know, I think that uh there's been sort of like a a real rush of groups um uh trying it out um for certain things and I know that there's also been um some some big failures in different projects and um you know, I think that at the at the core level um it's I don't know if it's the enthusiasm over crowdfunding or a specific type of platform that you need to be concerned about. I think 
consider the crowdfunding platform truly to just be a development tool that you're using in the course of uh, any other fundraising activity that you would do, um, and think about whether you want to strategically try to acquire a certain type of donor online. That would you would only be really getting about 30% new donors through that process. And so, if that's an, an interesting exercise for you to go through with a majority of your online donors, um, and you want to engage with them in that way, and you think that that would amplify your work rather than sort of like exhaust your existing base. Um, I think it's important to consider, but um, I, I do know that uh, in my inbox I get uh, lots and lots of requests every day for, you know, funding a new album or a movie, um, and I think that these this is uh, becoming a common thing, but I think it's just a, a new way of collecting donations online um, that's becoming as common as any other sort of donate tool. Great. Thank you, Erin. Um, sure. we, um, we just have about 10 minutes left, uh, so um, we'll move on. We've got a lot of questions here, so again, hopefully our guests and uh, those listening can add to the answers for, for some of these. Um, Tom from Rhode Island talks about uh, some creating some partnerships, uh, and, and to condense what he's saying, you know, it's really how do we meld smaller projects that are initiated at the grassroots level with larger institutional efforts to create, you know, a really successful effort in a community. Cindy? This kind um, of yeah. small grassroots and putting that together with an institutional project. Yeah, I think that I think this idea of um I mean first of all, let me just applaud the effort. <laughs> um it's um you know grassroots funding being part of a of a larger program, um, I don't know if this is really the, the right example to give, but if you're trying to do some kind of uh, grassroots funding and you're trying to bring you know, larger grant makers into it, there is a wonderful example, and, I, and I'll post all this on the on the, uh, the Google Doc as well, but there's a, a great group called Verde, V-E-R-E-E, I think it is, out of um, Portland, Oregon. And they did a project where they brought together um, a, a, an impoverished neighborhood, and they were trying to build an open space. There'd be a community garden and a park, and you know they were really looking for a lot of money, actually millions and millions of dollars, and they had nothing. And so they brought together, they built this collaboration, and I think collaboration is really the key here because it draws, it will draw in, it will attract some larger amounts of money. And they they went to work on some a project that they called Let's Build Culley Park. And the Culley Park, which is in this north neighborhood, is really um, you know, the whole the whole neighborhood is sort of a concentrated poverty area with lots of racial diversity, um, uh, as well as a lack of access to nature and other environmental benefits. And so when they started they built this coalition at first, they just had a, a handful, you know, two or three groups. It turned out, by the time they were finished, they had 15, that's a lot, 15 community-based organizations, you know, and it included things like a, groups like the Columbia Slough Watership Council and the Collie Association of, of Neighborhoods, I think, and Hacienda, um, there's a Hacienda CDC, and there's a Latino network, and there's a Native American component. I mean, it went on and on. It was a really strong coalition, 
once they built that coalition, and this is the beauty of this program, this is what I love about this program, they met with the city and the state to talk about funding because this was a brownfield where they were trying to that they were trying to turn into a park, right? Mm-hmm. So they met with the city and the state to talk about this project. When they met with them, they set up the meeting, but they met with them. They had a representative from all 15 of the coalition members that walked into the meeting and sat down, and it happened. I mean, the dollars have poured in, and when you get a chance to go to the website, you must do this and look at the um, the grant makers that have given to this, starting with the state, and then they're so, using. I know. So partnerships are essential. Peace. Yeah, I'm. You know, we. I, I can't believe we're we're already almost out of time. Uh, I know that our, especially with these some specific funding needs, um, our panelists will uh, go into the Google Doc and maybe make a few suggestions. Um, and we hope listeners do as well. I think you know while we just have uh, just a few minutes left, I'd like to hear from all three of you about just you know in 30 seconds what what can folks do next week to get started what's what's what just comes top of mind through some of the questions that you've read here that or something that we haven't quite gotten to yet or something that people can do just to get going uh, why don't we start with Cindy um, I, I would love it if they sign up for the webinar because <laughs> because I think the funding rural America webinar is going to be you know we talk about a lot of the funding sources that have been talked about here today plus dozens and dozens of other funding sources so it's very specific. I think if they could sign up um, through you guys to do the webinar, I think that would be fabulous. Awesome. Well, I've just seen that the the free slots have been all taken up, but uh, there's there's still slots available. Um, it's January 30th. Funding Rural America, finding new grants for small communities. Thank you so much, Cindy. Um, Aaron, a, a final thought for for you for folks. Sure. I think if folks are interested in crowdfunding and want to learn more about how they can use it better um, or use it at all, um, I'd encourage people to sign up for IOB's course in uh, in best practices in crowdfunding. It's called Fast Cash. You can sign up for it at iob.org slash fastcash. And um, IOB is spelled I-O-B-Y, as in in our backyards. Awesome. Okay, thank yeah. you. And, Jen, what would you – encourage people to do that uh, to, to get going on their fundraising? Well, I, I think we provided a broad range of, of funding sources out there, and I think the thing to remember is to not get discouraged and to be really aggressive in pursuing a wide variety of sources for your project. Um, one thing that we've really seen at the NEA is that crowdfunding is often used as a match to our grants. We require a one-to-one match. Um, which can be raised either with in-kind donations, but more and more we're really inspired by the ways in which communities are cobbling together a whole host of resources to execute a vision. And my advice to potential applicants to federal government programs, particularly at the NEA, is one of the values in going through that process and applying for a grant is you're really putting down some detailed thought on paper that helps to get other partners on board um, to really put together some strategic thinking for the organization's activities moving forward. And at the NEA, if you are successful or if you're not successful in obtaining a grant, you can call and receive feedback. 
And since all of our grants are reviewed by peer professionals working out in the field, that is an invaluable resource. And so many times we see folks that, you know, might be novices at applying for federal grant funding and come in the door with some really great ideas, but perhaps their proposal fell short in the review process. They call in, they get comments, and they are successful the next time around. So that's been really inspiring to watch, and I just encourage folks to be bold and go after their big ideas and, um, you know, spread the gospel of the great work happening in your community, find the great partners, and seek resources. Awesome. Uh, Jen, Cindy, and Aaron, uh, you have given us incredible resources. That's, that's such a fantastic service that, because a lot of people ask, what do people do wrong in grants? How do I do it right? Sometimes you just have to do it. And then if you can uh, have, go to a resource like that that will let you know what worked, what didn't work, um, it's, it's really doing it that, that helps you get to the next step. Thank you all. Uh, let's, uh, so we hope um, that we can make the most of the wisdom from this crowd and all of our listeners, too. So please help us add again to the Google Doc. I know we couldn't get to all of your questions on the phone uh, today, but we would benefit from uh, your comments, answers, and expertise. The podcast and all the call notes will be emailed around to all of you who registered and also posted online at the Community Matters website. Uh, so you can listen again or listen to parts uh, that you missed and look at all the notes that we had today. Uh, watch for information in the next few weeks about future CM calls, including the last in this Make It Happen series, co-sponsored by the Orton Family Foundation and Citizens Institute on Rural Design. February's call is on February 13th. Um, I think it's not quite posted yet, but please uh, note the date. And on that day, we will be looking at leadership with the Heartland Center. It will focus on how to grow effective local leaders who can nurture volunteers, corral resources, and build the public support that can move community design or planning work from paper into practice. It will actually be a webinar, so there will be a visual component that time and some interactive opportunities for all of you uh, as participants. So. I think that will be a very exciting uh, call and webinar. Please mark your calendars for February 13th. Thank you all for participating. Um, I'm Fran Stoddard, and good luck to all of you with fundraising for your projects in your town. Thanks again to Cindy, Jen, and Aaron, and all of you at Orton who have helped today. Happy New Year, everybody. Bye-bye.